All right, we are going to get started. Welcome back, everyone. Every first day of Bible study, I think, is anybody going to come back after that intro lesson? I'm not sure, but you're here. Yay. Um, we are going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So if you could turn in your Bibles um, there to 1 Timothy chapter 1, we are going to be looking at the first 11 verses together. All right, let's start our time with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We praise you for who you are. We praise you um, for all that you have done on behalf of your redeemed people. We thank you for your word, and I ask that you would um, be with us as we um, look into your word, that you would speak to us through your word. I ask that you would help me to set aside my nerves and um, anxieties and that you would fill me with your spirit and I would speak truth today. And I pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right. First Timothy 1 verses 1 through 11. Now Paul does not beat around the bush, does he? as he starts his letter to Timothy. It's pretty much, I'm Paul, I'm the apostle, and he just dives right into what his agenda is, what he wants to talk about. Immediately after his greeting, he begins to speak about what is most likely weighing heavily on his mind and heart. He has heard through the grapevine that there's been some trouble brewing in the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is a, was a thriving metropolitan ancient port city and it was located in what is now modern day turkey at one time it was considered one of the most important cities in the ancient world the city of ephesus like many other cities they worshiped a god they had like their own special god and the god that they worshiped was the goddess artemis and it was into this idolatrous center that paul had come on his second missionary journey around the year 52 AD. He began in the synagogues, as was per usual for him. And then he went out into the marketplace and Paul began preaching the gospel message. And that message literally turned the city of Ephesus upside down. The powerful message of the gospel is what turned Ephesus upside down. And thus the church began in that city. In 54 AD, Paul came back to Ephesus and spent another two to three years there in this church. He was teaching, he was discipling, he was ministering, he was building, laying the foundation for this church. And at some point, Paul left again and he entrusted to Timothy, his young protege, the monumental task of overseeing this church. At the time of this letter's writing, the church was now probably 10, 12 years old. So it's a well-established church. And it is clear from the content of the letter that word had gotten to Paul that Timothy was facing challenges in the form of false teaching and doctrinal drift. Throughout the letter, we get some important clues into Paul's fatherly heart toward Timothy. Perhaps Timothy was struggling with discouragement, frustration, fatigue, weariness. We know from the letter that, Paul, that Timothy was having some health issues because Paul encourages to drink a little, him to drink a little wine for his stomach. 
And whenever you have health issues, that can lead you down this place of discouragement and weariness. So Paul's letter is a letter intended to give strength to the weak, empowering him to step out in boldness to defend the truth. He reminds Timothy in the letter um, of the prophecies that had been previously made about him. He reminds him in chapter 414 of the spiritual gift that he received on the laying on of hands, which was Timothy's ordination to pastoral ministry. And in 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul tells him, do not let anyone despise you for your youth. So you get the sense throughout the letter of Timothy that Timothy was struggling, that he had a lot of obstacles, and Paul is seeking to relieve that and empower him to be able to stand firm in this fight that he was in as a pastor. The office, we must understand, of overseer-pastor is a difficult one. There is a huge, huge weight on these men to carry out the ministry that God is calling them to. The pastor is, is tasked with the responsibility to feed his sheep, He is to defend and guard against doctrinal drift, and the continuous barrage of attacks can wear a pastor down. And we get a glimpse into the humanity of Timothy, the very real reality that men who are called to the pastoral ministry, to the ministry of overseer, struggle. They struggle with insecurities, just like we do. They struggle with weariness. They lose heart. And this should serve as a reminder to us to pray for the men that are pastoring in our churches. So this is kind of a little bit of the background into um, the letter of Timothy. Now, in the first two verses, we see Paul lay the foundation or the basis for his charge to Timothy. He's going to charge Timothy with something. And he grounds his charge in three things. He grounds his charge in his authority as an apostle. He grounds it in his relationship with Timothy and in their common united faith. And then thirdly, he's grounding it in the blessing of God. Let's look at first at the um, verse 1. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So he first grounds his authority to um, speak into Timothy's life by his apostleship. He is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically Now, the word apostle literally means one who is sent out. In scripture, it is used in two different ways. It's used in reference to the 12 apostles of Jesus. And it's also used in a more generic sense, referring to any individual who was sent out to be a messenger or ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what Paul is referring to here as being an apostle is that unique position and a role that is no longer present in the church today. Those 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, those original apostles, this is what he's referring to. And this is not something that is um, in present in the church today. The qualifications of this type of apostle was you had to have been a witness to the resurrected Christ. Like you had to physically have seen him. We see that in 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Two, you had to explicitly been chosen by the Holy Spirit, and we see that in Acts 9.15. 
And three, you had to have the ability to perform signs and wonder. And we see that in Acts 2, 43 and 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And that was the purpose of the apostles doing the signs and wonders was to prove that they were chosen by God. They were his witnesses in the, in, in the region. So the responsibility of the 12 apostles was to lay the foundation of the church. That's what Jesus said their job was. It was to lay the foundation of the church, which also argues for their uniqueness. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we are not still working on laying the foundation of the church. We are building upon the foundation of Christ and the apostles. Now, Paul is one of these specific apostles on which the church is founded. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 10, Paul says this. He says, Then he, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to James and to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul is telling us that he is one of those original apostles upon which the foundation of of the church is laid by the calling and the appointment of God himself. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by God's command, Paul says in Timothy. He's there by God's command, not by man's, but by God's. God's sovereign authority to call whom he chooses to do what he chooses for them. The word command gives us the sense that Paul has no choice. He has no say in the matter. He has nothing but to... He can do nothing but go and do what God has commanded him to do. His life is not his own. He was bought with a price, and therefore God can command him to do as he wills. And Paul's apostleship is at the command of God. He, He defines, he tells us who it is this God is. He is God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. He gets very specific so that we can clearly understand who this God is who has commanded him as an apostle. And we typically assign the title Savior to Jesus, don't we? We don't typically say, God is my Savior. We assign it to Jesus. And sometimes I think there's this misunderstanding that happens in our hearts that Jesus is the Savior and God, the Father, is the angry God of the Old Testament who all he's about is casting lightning bolts down from heaven and randomly destroying people, right? But Jesus is the good God. He's the one that we like. But that Old Testament God, not so much. But what Paul is telling us here is that God... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together are the author of salvation. Together they have provided salvation for the people who are redeemed. It is a united work. It was the Father who initiated the plan of salvation before we are told in the scriptures, before the foundation of the world even began. Before God spoke the words, Let there be light. God had already decided and planned for the Redeemer, for salvation. 
So before sin ever even entered into the world, God had a plan in place because God is sovereign and he knows all things. So God initiated the plan of salvation. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who accomplished it. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who we know as Jesus, is the one who accomplished the work that the Father had initiated. Think about what Jesus said when he came to earth. He said, I came to do my Father's will. He's not working independently of the Father. Everything he said, everything he did was the will of the Father initiated in the gospel plan of salvation, and Jesus accomplished it for us. And God the Holy Spirit, his role in the salvation plan is to apply salvation to the individual's life, to convict us of sin, to show us the Savior, and he applies it to our lives. So God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all authored, salvation. So God is our Savior, and Christ Jesus is our hope. The hope of this great plan of salvation is in Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, whom if we have seen him, we have seen the Father. He in him lies the hope of our salvation. He is the means of our salvation, and he is the reward of our salvation. Hope in the here and now, even as we navigate the struggles and trials of this world in which we live, and then hope of eternal life. And this is the God of our salvation, and this is the God who is commanding Paul. But Paul continues on. He continues on to base his um, charge to Timothy on his relationship with Timothy. Verse 2 says, Timothy, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. He is basing his, his appeal to him or his charge to him on the fact that Timothy, for Paul, is his child, his true child in the faith. They have a relationship as a father would with a son. And scattered throughout all of Paul's letters, we get the sense of the intimacy of this relationship between Paul and Timothy, and it's beautiful. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul calls Timothy his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He loved Timothy like you would love a son. In Philippians 2.19, he says to the church at Philippi, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. And so Paul is appealing and reminding him of the intimacy of their relationship and also of their common faith. He's this true child in the faith. And faith here is referred to the doctrines, the truths, the system of beliefs in which their their faith is grounded on. They have a common belief in the triune God, in his redemption, in the world, and the cross, and the resurrection, and the hope of the kingdom of God. And lastly, Paul reminds Timothy of the trifold blessing of God. Continuing in verse 2, he says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's, he's speaking as an apostle 
of God, at the command of God, bringing the blessing of God onto Timothy. And grace expresses God's ongoing forgiveness, his ongoing empowerment and enabling him to carry out the task that God has entrusted to him. And mercy, mercy is a beautiful word from the Old Testament word hesed, one of my favorite words, hesed, which is often translated steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This is his mercy. It's his compassion and his sympathy towards people towards his people. And so God, God is blessing through Paul, Timothy, to work out of his grace, his mercy, his peace. Peace is speaking of that inner tranquility and stability while you're sitting in the midst of not tranquility, of instability. You can you can have the blessing of the peace of God that passes all understanding and that comes from God. So once again, this trifold blessing that comes from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord through the mouth of the Apostle Paul reminds me once again of the goodness of God. He is such a good God. The God that is revealed in this book, the Bible, is not a stingy God. He is overflowing with blessing. He's overflowing onto his people with goodness. The God that is revealed in this book, from Genesis to Revelation, is constantly seeking to bless and overflow this blessing on his people. Paul, just in his greeting alone, is so full of encouragement and life. He is encouraging, to, encouraging Timothy to remember his foundation and from where he draws his strength. Can you imagine what the words would have felt like to Timothy if he was struggling with perseverance in the faith to hear these words coming out of the mouth of his beloved father in the Lord? how that would encourage him to do what he has been called to do. So Paul establishes his basis for his charge to Timothy. So what is his charge? Let's look at his charge. Paul's charge to Timothy is twofold. First, Timothy is called to confront false teachers in love, and then second, to teach what conforms to the gospel. And this charge is coming as a command to him, and he, Timothy, is to turn around and command these false teachers to stop what they're doing. So just like Paul's authority as an apostle is under the command of God, Timothy has authority to command these, these certain persons that are in his church to not teach this different doctrine. There is an authority that is given to our pastors to the overseers of the church by God through the apostolic teaching of the scriptures to watch out for certain persons that would creep into the church or to influence the believers in the church away from the truth. Did you know that your pastor is to be so saturated in the truth of scripture, to be studying in such a way that he is rightly dividing the word of truth so that he can protect you and me? Protect your church members from being led away into false teaching? What an awesome responsibility they carry on their shoulders. Again, second reminder to be praying for our pastors 
as they carry out the calling that God has placed on their lives. Let's continue. Let's look at verses 3 through 7. Verse 3 says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge or command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship of God, from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident certain assertions. So Paul charges Timothy with, with urgency, because this is very important, to confront certain persons that are either in the church or they're influencing the members of the church away from the truth. In other words, he wants Timothy to speak with authority to whoever these certain persons are and tell them, stop it, just stop it. He wants them to verbally communicate, do not do this. Now remember also that this letter is a personal letter to Timothy, but it's not a private one. We talked about that last week, that this would have been shared with the church. So the church members are now also hearing this as well. And so through Paul, the people of the church are being challenged as well to stop listening to such people. Now these certain persons are not named, but Paul gives us clues as to how they can be identified. And there's three things about them. We know that they are teaching some false doctrine. We know that they are devoted to myths and endless genealogies. And we know that they desire to be teachers of the law. So first, they're teaching a false doctrine. They are straying away from the truth of Scripture and leading people to teach what to, to follow the false teaching. So they're twisting and distorting the words of God, conning people into believing what is not true. So there's a false doctrine that they are teaching. They are also devoted to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations and vain discussions and a wandering away from the truth. Now, in this ancient cultural context, um, it was very common. It was a very common thing for poets and historians to work out romantic and fictitious tales about the foundations of their cities, and families. I mean, I don't know if you remember back into high school when we studied um, Remus and Romulus. Do you remember them about the foundation of Rome on these twin brothers and the one killed the other? And it was a whole thing. It was just like this whole thing. Well, that's one of the fables. That's one of the myths that historians had talked about. Remus and Romulus's mother was married to the god Mars, and then she had these babies, and it was upon Romulus that after he killed his brother that he built the city of Rome. So that would be one example of a common story. And all the cities probably had their own version of that same story. A god marries a woman and, you know, they have offspring and then the city is named after that offspring. The other interesting thing culturally about that time is this idea of endless genealogies. They were fascinated with genealogical lists. And we kind of know that from the scriptures. How many genealogies do we have in the word of God? And it's like, oh no, it's another one. 
And an interesting thing is that Jewish religious leaders were just fascinated by these genealogical lists. I found this so interesting. And they would make up stories about every name in the Bible's genealogies. Just make them up. And they would write these endless stories about, oh, I don't know, Peleg. And, you know, I can't think of all the names in the Old Testament genealogies. But, you know, all of the lists. They would fabricate stories. And they were devoted to this. This is what Paul is speaking to. These fabrications, these myths, they are devoting to this. And it leads into speculations, right? And we know speculations lead into vain discussions and all the discussions about all of the things that we're just speculating about. And discussions many times will then lead us into disagreements, well, I think this person's story was better than that person's story. And then there's factions going on and arguments going on and all sorts of craziness. And ultimately, all of these things lead away from, what does Paul say? He says it in verse 4. It says that these teachings, these false teachings, the myths and genealogies, they promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The stewardship from God is referring to the word of redemption, the gospel message of salvation that scripture is revealing to us that comes through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the major point of what Paul is making. This is important. Different doctrines, myths, genealogies and are dangerous because they distract us and from the main thing they lead people away from the truth of the gospel of jesus christ all our hope is in jesus he is life itself and these teaching are actually leading people away from true life and salvation and hope this is why it is so important for false teaching of any kind to be confronted because people's lives are at stake. Now, we're not immune to this, are we, ladies? 2,000 years later, this is maybe different types, but this is the same. We, too, need to be guarded against this in our own personal lives. Are we being led astray into false teaching? into teaching that is taking us away from the truth of God's word? Are we being captivated by speculations in our days? There is no shortage of speculations on the interwebs. Oh, my word. You know what? The Bible does not answer every single question that we have, does it? No. And so what we love to do is fill in the gaps. We love to speculate on those gaps, don't we? We love it. Who married Cain? Who are the Nephilim? All right, what about what is the mark of the beast? Who is the Antichrist? Countless hours on podcasts. Are there aliens? What about the flat earth? Oh my goodness, I could go on and on and on. Countless hours of speculation about things that distract us from the truth of the word of God. 
Paul urges Timothy to confront such people. And through the scripture, Paul is urging pastors throughout the ages to do so as well. And you and I need to take stock of our own lives and do a little personal evaluation. We need to confront our own listening habits, our own reading habits. Is who we are listening to leading us into speculation? Are they distracting us from the beauty of God and his gospel message? So Paul's charge is to confront, to confront these, these certain persons and tell them to stop it. But he adds a caveat to that. It needs to be done in love. We don't want to be jerks about this. It needs to be done in love. Verse 5 says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of this charge is love. Not winning an argument. Not looking good. Not being smarter. But love. Love for God. Love for his people. And yes, even love for those who are swerving from the truth. But it's a pretty specific love Paul is referring to here, is it not? It's a love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, in our cultural context, again, there's a lot of confusion about love. What does the word love mean? It is crazy confused. In our context, love carries with it the meaning of full acceptance. If I love you, then I will accept everything you are and everything you do with no questions asked. I will accept your sin. If I don't accept you in our current cultural context, then actually what that means is I hate you, not love you. And it gets all twisted. And so here's a crucial moment for us in Bible study. We cannot take today's meaning for the word love and put it on the bible this is how things get distorted and confused we cannot we draw from the bible what the word love means we draw from god's mind what the word loves mean means and in each of these what paul says in here that the love that he's speaking about is a love that issues from a pure heart a clean conscience and sincere faith. Each one of these three indicate that the love that Paul is talking about is is a love that comes from God. It's not a superficial feeling. It's not emotional. But rather, it is what scripture calls agape love. It's agape love. It involves faithfulness, commitment, an act of the will. And it's distinguished from all other types of love because of its lofty moral nature and its strong character. Agape love is what we see beautifully described in 1 Corinthians 13. That is what agape love is defined at. Listen to that. Listen to what love is. It is patient and it is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, 
but rejoices with the truth. So love is holding fast to truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things and hopes all things, endures all things. And this kind of love is not natural to you and to me. This is not a natural love. We're not born with this love. It can only come out of a pure heart, a clean conscience, and a sincere faith, which are all the works of God in salvation. So let's talk about that. Pure heart. Agape love is a love that issues from a pure heart. How does one get a pure heart? A pure heart is given to us by a miraculous work of God, and it happens immediately upon a person's salvation. In Titus 2, verse 14, it says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. When Christ Jesus died on the cross, he did so to purify our hearts, to purify us from sinfulness. And when we put our faith in him, we receive that salvation and we are given immediately a pure heart. But at the same time, we remain here, do we not, in this body of flesh? We still have our sin nature, even though we've been saved and we've been given a pure heart that's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We're not miraculously transformed into perfect, sinless people, unfortunately. It's a process. So not only do we get an instant purification, God sees us as pure, but he's also making us pure through his word. Listen to what um, Paul says in Ephesians 5. In speaking of how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Paul says that he might sanctify or purify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So every time you're in God's word, reading it personally, at women's Bible study, whenever you're in church and the pastor is preaching to you, Jesus himself is washing you, purifying you with his word. So this is how we get a pure heart. Love also is a love that, that issues from a good conscience. So we have, or we have a pure conscience. Similarly, we've been purified from our sins by the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only purifies our heart, but he's purifying our conscience. Hebrews 9.14 says this, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let me just pause here for just a second to, to, to point out this idea of how important a pure conscience, a good conscience is to how we serve. If our conscience has not been purified by God, our service is service in t- that is motivated in an intent to purify our own consciences to make ourselves pure by our good works. But if we've already been purified by the cleansing blood of Jesus, we can serve God out of love and not in an attempt to give ourselves a clean conscience, to give ourselves a pure heart. Isn't that a beautiful thing? God does that for us. It changes the motivation as to why we serve. We serve from love, not for it. We serve from it, but that comes 
from a purified heart and a purified conscience that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this clear conscience is actively applying the benefits of the salvation that we have in Jesus. We have the forgiveness of sins. He paid our debt. It's been nailed to the cross. We no longer carry the debt of sin. And we have forgiveness. And so a clear conscience is actively applying that truth to our lives. Scripture tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet Satan continues to bring condemnation, does he not, into our minds. We're constantly wrestling with our conscience, constantly wrestling with condemnation. But this tells us that God has given us forgiveness, and so we actively apply this to our conscience, the fact that we are forgiven. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus, we do this repeatedly, daily, sometimes 50 million times in a day we need to do this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Our conscience is purified by remembering and looking to Jesus. And all of this comes from a sincere and genuine faith. Paul uses the word faith frequently. This is his third use in just a couple verses. But when Paul is using it here, he is speaking of a believer's personal trust in Jesus' work of salvation. When a believer says, this is for me. I need this. This is mine. This is all God's great salvation. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith is love that has come from God. And this is love, not that we God love God, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. It is not a man-made love that's based in emotions or feelings. It's love that is initiated from God, poured into the hearts of his children, and propels us to serve the living God out of a heart of love. And it is this love that is the aim that is behind Paul's charge for Timothy to confront what these certain persons and tell them to stop. And the, finally, the, these certain persons were, were looking, they were desiring to be teachers of the law. So they wanted to have positions of authority in the lives of the people, and they wanted to teach the word of God. Law here, Paul is talking about, references likely the whole Old Testament scriptures that they had at the time. So they want to teach the Old Testament scriptures. And these teachers are making confident assertions, but in reality, they don't know what they're talking about. They're confidently asserting what they know nothing about. And I cannot help but think of our own cultural context where so many people desiring to be teachers of the scriptures are making confident assertions about what they don't know. They know absolutely nothing about it. And I just love how God's word is fresh and applicable to us today. He's not left us alone to figure out how to navigate this world. He's given us his word And he's preserved his word for us so that we can be discerning listeners. We can see beyond the confidence of a teacher. And I say this to you as you listen to me. 
Take what I say and hold it to the word of God. Make sure I'm not twisting and distorting the truth and putting my own meaning on it. You need, we need to be discerning listeners. And we saw last week that the word of God can be rightly and wrongly handled. And these certain persons, in being teachers of the scriptures, were wrongly handling the word of God. Remember how Paul instructed Timothy to study in such a way to rightly divide the word of God. They were not doing that. Remember that we need the spirit of God to actually help us to understand God's wordly and the, rightly, and they don't have that. The teachers that Paul is addressing have no understanding of what they are talking about. They desire to teach the law, but what they are teaching is wrong. They confidently are asserting their false doctrines, leading people away. They don't understand God's word, nor do they understand God himself. So Timothy is not only to confront them in their false teaching, but then he's also to teach rightly. In verses 8 through 11, we see this. Timothy is being called to teach the law rightly, and what that means is to teach sound doctrine, which accords with the gospel. He says in verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one use it, it uses it lawfully. The law is good. The problem is not with the scriptures. The problem is not with the law. It's with those who are wrongly teaching the law. It's, the problem is with the teachers. One of the ways that the law is used that is wrong is to call the law itself or the scriptures bad or to diminish them to say that they're no longer necessary, to ignore them, to minimize them. Or in our modern vernacular, to unhitch from the Old Testament. Another way that the law is used wrongly is, is to teach in such a way that we think that by obeying the law, we can somehow earn salvation. That somehow if, if we... Um, achieve certain moral good works, or we do this in this order, God will be pleased with us. And if our good outweighs the bad, then we can gain heaven. These are two wrong uses of the law. So how is the law used lawfully? Paul continues, he says in verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, or those who are justified by faith, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The law is used rightly when we understand its purpose. It's not for the just, Paul says, or those who are righteous by faith, those who have been saved by the redemption of Jesus Christ. It means that for the believer in Jesus, those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his righteousness, they have a completely different relationship with the law. Their relationship with the law is completely different than the unbeliever. The law for the believer no longer brings condemnation. No longer does the law bring judgment for those who are in Christ. For they have been justified, not by their works to the law, but Christ's works to the law. 
by Christ's good works and their faith in the Lord Jesus' obedience. So rather, the relationship that the believer has with the law, they have already been given the righteousness of Christ, but the word of God or the law of God begins to train them in righteousness and begins to conform them to the image of Jesus who perfectly kept the law. So the believer's relationship with the law is very different. For the unbeliever, the ungodly, the unholy, the profane, the law brings conviction and condemnation. You see what Paul is doing in this passage? He's actually practicing what he's preaching. He's saying he begins to go through the Ten Commandments and starts um, taking us through the Ten Commandments to bring about this idea of conviction. He says in verses 9 through 10, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the breaking of the fifth and sixth commandment. Verse 10, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, is the breaking of the seventh commandment. Um, Manstealers, enslavers, this is manstealers, kidnappers. It's the breaking of the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. Liars, perjurers, breaking of the ninth commandment. Unless we start to think highly of ourselves, well, I've not done it those things he says and whatever else like you fill in the blank anything else that you see in the word of god that does not align with sound doctrine which is breaking any and all of the commandments so what paul is getting at in this list is the purpose of the law it exposes the hearts of all of us it exposes to us what that we are unholy profane ungodly we are the sinners we are intended initially to read the word of god to read the scriptures and to see ourselves not as the righteous but as the sinner we're intended to see ourselves as the sinner but we're also given the remedy for that The law also is in accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ because scripture also teaches us that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the good news. Jesus came specifically for you and me to save us from the condemnation that the law brings on us. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The law and the gospel are not opposing works of God. They are best friends. They are fast friends. They are inextricably linked together. The gospel makes no sense without the law. The law without the gospel is just overwhelming. They go together. And what is at stake here is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And this is why it matters. This is why it matters so much. And this is why Paul begins his letter immediately with the confrontation of those who would lead people away from the gospel and those who would follow them. Because the gospel, ladies, is everything. The gospel is the glory of God. Remember the story in Exodus about Moses? Do you remember in Exodus 33, one of my favorite passages? Moses is pleading with God. 
He's pleading with him. He's pleading with him to show me your glory. Just show me your glory, God. I need to see your glory. And what happened? It says Moses, verse 18, 33, 18 says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand. It's like, I'll give you a peek. I'm just going to give you a peek. And you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Moses so longed, Moses, the giver of the law, so longed to see the glory of God, but he couldn't. He could only see the backside because nobody can see God and live until Jesus. In Jesus, we see the glory of the blessed God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. Our creator has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We can look into the face of Jesus, who is the message of the gospel, who is our living hope, and we see the glory of the the blessed God who made us and redeemed us. Vain speculations, endless discussions, a different doctrine are the very things that turn our faces away from the glory of the blessed God into lesser mundane things. Reject them all and turn to Jesus. Turn to the Jesus whom the scripture testifies Turn to him for all that he is, all that he has done in salvation, and all that he continues to do as he sits at the right hand of his Father. It is he who is the glory of the blessed God, and it is he who is our living hope, both now and forevermore. And it is to Jesus and Jesus alone that we turn our eyes and fix our gaze as we fight the good fight of faith. Let's pray. Lord, turn our eyes to you. I pray that as we go out from this place, that you would turn our faces away from the things that are distracting us, from the vain discussions and the, and the speculations, and turn us to the beautiful, glorious faith, face of Jesus, who is for us our living hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.